Our Father, we just uh, come together this morning to lift up the name of Jesus and to to see Jesus made known amongst us, to proclaim Christ to one another. And Father, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see just how great a love that you've shown to us through your Son, how deep and wide that love is for us, that we would begin to comprehend just a little bit of how great your love is for us. Lord, I pray that this morning uh, you would clarify that your Holy Spirit would would move in us to clarify who Jesus is, that you clarify who we are before him, that you would help to clarify what he's called us to uh, into relationship uh, and brotherhood with him and, and sonship and daughtership uh, uh, to you, our Father. Lord, I pray that as I preach uh, this morning that you would say what you have would have said, that you would have each ear hear what you would have uh, it hear, that each heart would be, would be cut, open so that Jesus will be made known. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So what happens when the Holy Spirit comes? What happens when the Holy Spirit comes? Uh, We've been in this series called Pentecost. It's the first couple chapters of Acts and today we're going to wrap up the second chapter of Acts and wrap up the series called Pentecost. Uh, and, And like I said in week one, all the way through the book of Acts, and definitely in these beginning like introduction-type chapters, Luke is leading us to see that the, that the work of the apostles and the advance of the gospel through the early church, that all of it hinged on the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It all hinged on Pentecost. It all hinged on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And these are a couple of chapters that that many turn to when they kind of wonder that question, what happens when the Holy Spirit comes? Because it's Pentecost. Holy Spirit is poured out. We all know this passage. Like, this is where the Holy Spirit comes, right? And so we turn to these chapters to see what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. And the most, I think one of the most familiar parts of the whole two chapters is is in part of what we're dealing with this morning. And it's Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47. So we turn to these chapters to see what happens when the Holy Spirit comes, and then we go to the most familiar part, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, and it says this, if you want to follow along with me. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Like I said, it's a familiar passage of Scripture. And if you've been in church for some time, You've probably heard this passage, read this passage, studied this passage at some point. And here's why. It's because, like, that's a beautiful picture of what the church ought to look like, right? It's what every church wants to look like. It's what the church as a whole wants to look like. It's the vision, right? It's a community on mission that's leading people to Jesus, who's leading people to Jesus. It's growing in number 
daily, and they're just saturating their place with the gospel. But here's the deal. I think that too often we kind of jump to 2, 42 through 47, this passage we just read, without the good news of chapter 2, verse 14 through 41. We start reading without that good news that comes before this, and we kind of get into just this little chunk at the end, and then we start looking for the formula, because we came here wondering what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. And we want the Holy Spirit to come because people are added to our number day by day, and exciting things start happening, right? But then we start looking at it kind of like a formula. So there's teaching. I'll do some teaching. We'll do some fellowship, plus prayer, plus selling and sharing our possessions, plus attending the temple together. We'll just say church. And then uh, plus being thankful. We need to do those things. And then the Holy Spirit comes and starts doing really cool things like signs and wonders in our presence. And he starts growing the church. And we might actually grow by like 2,000 in one day if we could just nail all six of those things at one time, right? It kind of becomes a little formulaic. Obviously, it's not intentional, but our thinking goes there. And when we start thinking of like that, it's even more than a formula. It kind of seems like an incantation. Like we're going to encant the Holy Spirit to come. And that's weird. But if we do the right things, if we make the right potion, then the Holy Spirit will come. And that's weird. That's not right. We know that's not right, but we're not thinking of it quite that blatantly. Here's the deal, though. I'm guilty of this personally, right? I feel like if I could just make sure that I read my Bible from cover to cover in a year, and then I pray every day, Uh, and maybe do my discussion questions or attend my missional community or do the things that I'm supposed to do, then the Holy Spirit will fill me, right? And then I can defeat sin and and all those kinds of things, and and maybe I can be a great witness. I'm also guilty of this in my ministry, right, in the the, the work of the ministry. I I want the Holy Spirit to come. I want the exciting things to happen. And so, you know, there's a tendency to start putting a formula to it. But I have to see, we have to see, that the Holy Spirit does not prescribe work here. It's a description, right? He doesn't prescribe the work. The Holy Spirit does the work. This is the Holy Spirit that, this is the work that the Holy Spirit did. And the Holy Spirit, uh, and the work that the Holy Spirit does is that he fills us with his presence and power, and then he makes Christ known through us. And he makes the reign of Christ over our hearts and over uh, the hearts of others a reality. And the Holy Spirit advances the kingdom. And he does that using us, but it's the Holy Spirit's work, right? So looking to see how to get the Holy Spirit to come or how to get the Holy Spirit to act, it's just the wrong pursuit. It's the wrong question. And I think, as we'll see, even the wrong, it's even the wrong question to ask what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. It's just the wrong question. But let's take a look and see what does happen when the Holy Spirit filled these first Christians, and we're going to look, we're just going to go back, because we need to see the good news of chapter 2, verses 14 through 41, before we get to this last little bit. So if you will, uh, read with me, it's a little bit of a long passage, it's an entire sermon, so this is a sermon on a sermon, so we have to read the whole sermon, that's just the deal. If you look at it with with me, chapter 2 of Acts, uh, verse 14 through 41. You'll remember that they were accused of being drunk because, uh, because of all of the things that were happening as the Holy Spirit came upon them. And that's where we pick up in verse 14. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea 
and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, that these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he sat at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul in Hades, and let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on a throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's pretty awesome. In, uh, in the year 2000, several thousand, I think it was like 30 plus thousand college students, went to this gathering in Memphis, Tennessee on Shelby Farms, which is just a big plot of land, and it was called One Day. It was put on by Passion Conferences. I was there. There's a few other people in the room I know who were there. Uh, and we went for this thing. It was called One Day. It was the idea that we were just setting a day apart to seek God together. It was a a sacred assembly. 
And I remember, like, we arrived the day before. We arrived really early in the morning. It was raining. We set up our tents in the rain. And then the next morning, we kind of went out. It was not one day yet. We had the day before the, the sacred assembly. And then we're there, and uh, there's this big field where we're going to gather the next day. And nobody's allowed to set foot on it, right? And then we took turns. Like, you could climb this tower, and you could read the scripture over the field. And, like, over that couple days beforehand, we actually read, I think, all of the scripture over the field. And we prayed over that field, and we kind of kept quiet and kept our feet off of it just to keep it sacred. And then we, we gathered that night, and we, we worshiped. There was, like, different worship leaders all over the place, uh, all over the different places in the property, and we, we worshiped. It was really cool. Didn't sleep at all because it was very uncomfortable and, and nasty. And then the next morning we got up and we went out. It just like went like 30,000 people silently onto this field. It was, pretty, it was pretty crazy. And then like the worship was amazing. Uh, we had John Piper speak, Beth Moore speak, Lou Giglio speak, Bodie Bauckham spoke to us, to like this generation of college students. John Piper gave like one of his most famous sermons ever, I think, about don't, don't waste your life. And so he sent, uh, you know, a, a bunch of college students out uh, with, the, with the call that we would not waste our life, that we would seek first to know and follow hard after God and to make him known to the ends of the earth, even in the hard places. And we were jacked. Like, we were pumped. Like, we spent some, it was amazing. It was an amazing time with each other and with God, and we were pumped. And then the last morning, on the, the last morning, we got up and we had like a commissioning service and Lou Giglio gave this commission to a bunch of college students who were just filled up with Christ. And I don't remember everything he said, but I remember this, the gist of it was basically that I want you to go back to wherever you came from, to whatever college campus you came from, to whatever city you're from. I want you to go back and I don't want you to, I want people to think you're drunk, right? Like when you're in college, that's kind of normal, but, but instead like, when somebody accuses you of being drunk, I want you to have to say, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not drunk, and I apologize if I'm not myself. It's not me, though. I'm just filled up with Christ. I'm, I'm just filled up with the Spirit. He said, I, wanted you, I want you to have to go back and apologize and say, I'm sorry if it's confusing the way I'm acting because I'm different today than I was last week. But it's not that I'm not seeing clearly today. I'm not drunk. It's that I wasn't seeing, seeing clearly last week, and I'm seeing clearly now. It has changed everything. I'm not drunk, and if I am drunk, I'm drunk on the Spirit of God. I'll never, I'll never forget, like, that was kind of the gist of what he said. I, I don't know. It stuck with me. And then this morning, we're reading this, and it's the exact situation, right, that Peter and the, the disciples find themselves in. They're accused of being drunk by the crowds who are witnessing all that the Spirit is doing through them, and they are filled up, literally, with the Spirit. And they're totally jacked and excited about what God is doing. And they're accused of being drunk. And so, filled with the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, just filled up with the knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of the good news, they stand together. Which I really love that part. That They're all standing there. They all stand together. It's a whole study in itself. But they stand together, and Peter says to the crowd that they aren't drunk. And then he begins to clarify the truth of what's going on. Like where the world experiences confusion, the Holy Spirit brings clarity. And that's what I want to look at this morning is through Peter's sermon, 
The Holy Spirit functions through Peter's sermon to at least provide clarity in these three ways. Probably much more. But number one, he clarifies how the events that they are currently witnessing, like all the Holy Spirit movement that they are looking at and saying these people are drunk, how the events they are currently witnessing prove the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants to clarify first. Secondly, he'll clarify who they are and where they stand in light of Jesus' lordship. And then third, he clarifies what Jesus as Lord has done and what he invites them to do. And so firstly, the first function of Peter's sermon is the lengthiest. It's almost the entire sermon, so it's going to take the longest. But the first function of, uh, of the Holy Spirit through Peter's sermon is to clarify how the events that are currently witnessing, that they currently are witnessing, prove the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now we've already seen a couple weeks ago. Reggie covered this part with Judas that was kind of like, okay, that's weird. Why is that there? Um, but we already saw through that that the disciples recognized the time in which they were living, right? As the work of the Holy Spirit was already moving since before them. And, was already, and the time in which they were living was already described in that story of what he was doing. They already recognized the time in which they were living. In light of the scriptures culminating in Jesus Christ, which Jesus had shown them to be true while he was, alive, while he was here on earth, and believing that Jesus was actually planning to accomplish the work that he set them out to do, right? Like, seeing that Christ had come and all the scripture had culminated in him, and believing that he sent them to reach the, the ends of the earth and that he was going to do it through them, they realize a call to find a replacement for Judas, which seemed like just kind of busy work, honestly. But they found in the scriptures where that was a call for them and to be participants in the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. And now, what we see, the gift and the works of the Holy Spirit that they are currently experiencing are just further proof of where they are in the story. Right? In light of the person and work of Jesus, this is the fulfillment of the prophecies in Joel and David that he's about to reference. The crowd even certainly expected to see these prophecies fulfilled at some point. The disciples expected to see them fulfilled at some point. The disciples realized that they are being fulfilled, but they just look a whole lot different than probably most had expected because most were still expecting some sort of nationalistic-looking fulfillment of these prophecies. And so... They, Peter is realizing that this is a fulfillment of prophecy and this is what was expected. So let's take a, look, a quick look back at Joel's prophecy that Peter quotes. The prophecy of Joel, this is in chapter 2 of Joel. It's a really tiny book. If you want to turn there, you can. We're going to look at like two verses or really just one verse really quickly. The rest is quoted there in Acts. The prophecy of Joel that Peter quotes here says this. It says, It will come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh it will come to pass afterward that I will pour my spirit out on all flesh and so the question is after what after what well in Joel's prophecy in the verses just before that the prophecy is a prophecy of restoration of his people of the restoration of his people to himself of God being with his people right and so in the verse just before that in Joel 2 Verse 27, it says this. This is before the afterward. He says, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, 
and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. That's it. You'll know that I'm in the midst of Israel. Does that sound familiar? You'll know that I'm in the midst of Israel. You'll know that I am with you. Like Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus. You'll know that I'm with you. You'll know that I'm in the midst of Israel. And then, in verse 28, there's a promise that afterward, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Do you see it? Do you see what I'm getting at? Peter recognizes it, and Peter is preaching that what is happening right now in their midst as sons and daughters of God are speaking languages that they do not know to, pro- to, to, to proclaim the gospel is a fulfillment of the promises found in Joel that the Holy Spirit would be poured out and that there would be spirit-inspired speech and spirit-inspired prophecy for both men and women and young and old <coughs> and so on and so forth. But, if that's true, if this prophecy is actually coming to fruition right now, if that's true, it only makes sense if Jesus is Lord. Because there's a sequence here, right? It only makes sense if Jesus is Lord, if he was who he said he was, if he wasn't just crazy, if he wasn't a heretic, if he was actually God who came in their midst to be with them if he is Emmanuel, God with us. And this is Peter's claim. He goes on in verse 22, chapter 2, verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Peter says Joel's prophecy has come to fruition. And then he goes on, I don't have time to cover all of it, but then he goes on to say that he's, he's, co- he's, he's uh, that David's prophecies have come true as well. He says, you killed Christ, you killed the Lord, but he was raised from the dead because death could not hold him, never could, never will be able to hold him because he's God. And then he was ascended to the right hand of God and we're all witnesses, like me and all these standing with me and all these you've just heard proclaiming Christ in different languages We're all witnesses. We saw it happen. And he, Jesus, a descendant of David, is seated on a throne forever at the right hand of God as promised in the past. And this, then, today, is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is promised in Joel's prophecy. This is the outpouring of the Spirit, and it only makes sense if Jesus was Lord. And the crowds, they have no other real explanation for what they're witnessing except for that they were drunk, but that doesn't make sense. People don't get drunk and start speaking languages they don't know. And they definitely don't make this kind of sense. And all the evidence seems pretty clear that this is the outpouring of God's Spirit. It's not what they expected. It's not what they were hoping for, but actually this looks, now that you mention it, this does look like that. Have you ever been like leaving the grocery store across town or leaving the mall or whatever and going home, like driving home. And then like as you go, you're just kind of like listening to some Britney Spears or whatever you like to listen to and, uh, and then kind of get off in a daze, maybe daydreaming. And the next thing you know, you're in your driveway. You're like, how did I get here? Like you 
just blanked out on the way home. And then you kind of, this is me, I mean, I've done this several times. And then you sit there for a minute, not with the Britney Spears, okay? But I've done this several times, and I just sit there for a minute, like you think of the implications, like, wait, if I'm home, I had to get on Bobby Jones, I had to go through like six major intersections, I had to, you know, this and this and this. To get here, I had to go through all this traffic and all these dangerous spots, and I have no recollection of how I did that. What happened? Were there red lights that I ran? Were, was I speeding? Did I maybe get into a police chase and not even know it? Uh, you know, and like a little bit of panic even sets in about what maybe happened or what laws I broke or how close I came to death. Well, I believe that like this might be that kind of moment for the crowd, but like times a thousand because, you know, it's about Jesus and God. Uh, I believe it might be that kind of moment for the crowd as, uh, as Peter kind of wraps up his sermon. He says this in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This leads us to our second function of Peter's message. The second function of Peter's message is to clarify who these people are and where they stand in light of Jesus' lordship. Jesus is Lord because if the Holy Spirit is being poured out, Jesus is Lord. And who are you in light of who Jesus is? And Acts 2.37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. This is the moment in the driveway. Like if, if I'm here, I must have gone through all those intersections blindly. And I have no idea what happened. Except this is bigger, right? This is... The, the implications are bigger. Like if the Holy Spirit has come, then I missed the Christ. And the implications are much bigger than me driving home and not knowing how I got there. If Jesus is Lord, then who does that make them? Murderers and enemies of God. If Jesus is Lord and they missed him and they got here, and the only way they could have got here is for that to be true, that Jesus is Lord, then that makes me an enemy of God. I missed it. This is why the gospel is said to be offensive. Because it offends. It always indicts. It always cuts to the heart. Right? It's good news that Jesus is Lord and that he's come to restore the world into right relationship with God, into right relationship with each other, into right relationship with all things. But if he is Lord, then I can't be. If he's over all things, then I can't be over all things. And if my ways don't match up with his, then I'd have to be the one in the wrong. But if it causes like some, some momentary like identity uh, confusion or some panic, we're not to worry because it doesn't cut to the heart just to watch you bleed. Right? The gospel doesn't cut you to punish you. It doesn't cut you to watch you bleed. It cuts you to do surgery. It cuts to bring clarity where there is blindness to let truth and reality like shine in on the fiction that you've been believing, that you've been living in. But it hurts. It hurts to admit that we are flawed, that we don't have it right, that we have it wrong, and that we got it wrong. That we mocked holy God on a cross. He came to love us perfectly. That we missed it. That we are at our very best while we're 
like they were attending our religious festivals, at their very best, they're still enemies of God. And at our very best, we're still enemies of God. What they couldn't see before, the Spirit made clear through Peter's sermon. Jesus is Lord. Because of what you've just seen, Jesus is Lord. He's God. And you've been his enemy. That's what he clarified. You've been an enemy of God. So, cut to the heart, laid bare and bleeding, the response to Peter brings us to, uh, to, to, to the third function of Peter's sermon. It clarifies what Jesus has done and what he invites us to do. So let's look at that response and some really good news in chapter 2, verse 38 through 41. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So before we move on, before we keep going, I just want to be clear about one thing. It's kind of an aside, but I want to be clear about this. Because people often get caught up in the gifts of the Spirit, which are certainly real, okay? But it's dangerous to come to this passage, uh, like this, it's, 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 it's dangerous to come to this passage looking to better understand what the gifts are and who gets the gifts and how to use your gifts of the Spirit. <clears throat> it's, it's dangerous to come to this passage for that, and here's why. These people take notice of the work of the Spirit being done through those whom he gifted on that day, right? That's what they notice, and they accuse them of being drunk. But after Peter's sermon, like nobody's concerned about them. Nobody's concerned about the gifts. They were used in that moment by the Holy Spirit through those who he gifted to make Jesus known and nobody's asking like the response when they say what shall we do nobody's asking what they must do to receive these gifts of the spirit that's not the question instead realizing who Jesus is realizing that Jesus is Lord and who they are in light of that when they ask brothers what shall we do they're asking from like a very helpless place what shall they do they want to be made right with the Lord they want to be made right with God they're not interested in the spiritual gifts so much, they want to be made right with God. All that's an aside just to say that it would be dangerous to go there from here because it would likely cause us to misinterpret the text and take things out of it that aren't necessarily there. But what I want to look at is Peter's answer to their question of what shall we do? He says, repent, we baptize in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Repent. This word repent, I think, has kind of like a, it's become kind of a bad word in a lot of minds, right? It's become kind of a bad word, especially in our culture, because thoughts of like hateful, angry Christians with cardboard signs, with big red repent home-drawn letters on them, and stakes, and posters, and whatever, and crosses, yelling through bullhorns at abortion clinics, and homosexuals, and rock concerts, and, and even at the gates of the masters for whatever reason, uh, Those, those are the thoughts that flood our mind when we think of the word repent. And so it, it's kind of got a bad rap. 
this word, but unlike those who today invoke it in such a hateful and angry way, Jesus' call to repent was an invitation. It was a calling, right? Yeah, it's a command too, but a command to like go down the very best road that you can go down hardly kind of meshes with the way we use the word command in our culture. So I call it like an invitation or a calling when Jesus used it. And Peter's use of it here is the same. Brothers, what shall we do? They ask him. A lost and cut open people, what shall we do? And Peter's use here is the same as Jesus's, and he says, repent. That's just turn the other direction. I mean, that's so gracious. You killed God, and he just would just turn around and come this way. That's an invitation. It's a calling. Yes, it's a command. It's an invitation. It's a calling. He tells them to repent, to just turn the other direction and follow Jesus as your Lord and to be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Now, at Redemption Church, when we practice baptisms, we're symbolically taking on the identity of Christ, right? We're symbolically taking on the identity of Christ who died, who was buried, who was resurrected, for the forgiveness of our sins. And so the old self is buried in the water when we do baptism. It's immersion baptism. And <coughs> excuse me. And the new self is risen to life with Christ, holy and pure. That's the, sim- the symbolic nature of the baptism. But what's in the name of Jesus? It's an identity thing. Like baptized in the name of Jesus is like a baby being born and taking on its parents' name or like a bride Going, take, you know, taking your husband and taking on his name. You take on the identity of Christ and you repent and follow him and are baptized in his name. And Ajith Fernando, a commentator, says this. He says that the name in Semitic thought expresses the very nature of a person's being. Like you not only take their name, but you actually begin to take on their nature. And even before the times of Christ, even before Christianity, some would have, were making the correlation between the difficulty of saying God's name, Yahweh, which is like, there's no Yahweh, it's like Yod, Hey, Vod, Hey, right? And it's, and I probably didn't say that right, but because it's hard to say, and they'd make the correlation between how difficult it is to say God's name and how difficult it is to see God and how difficult it is to know God and how difficult it is to be like God and understand the nature of God. There was a correlation between the name of God and the the nature of God. And there's good news here, right? Jesus Christ is the name of the Lord. And you can call him by name. And he's been made, he's been seen. We're all witnesses. And he's knowable. And he's giving you his very nature. The nature of God. God has come. He is with us, and he will come again. And this is very good news. The God whose name you couldn't say and could hardly see and whose nature was so other and so unreachable, you can now say his name clearly. He has been seen, and we can can be called by his name. We can take on his nature. We can go by his identity because of Jesus Christ coming and being buried, or dying and being buried and being and rising again, we can take on the name of Christ. We can call on his name, and he is with us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
this is good news. And Peter's saying, like, this is good news. You can have the nature of Christ. You can be baptized in the nature of God. He's not out of reach. He's right here with us. Go tell everybody. This is for all the people. Peter says it. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. That's male, female, old, young, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, black, white, Asian, and so on and so forth. It's good news for all people. This is for everybody. So like I said, Luke is leading us in his writing through Acts and by showing us this sermon that Peter's uh, preached here. He's leading us to see that the work of the apostles, the preaching of the apostles, the advance of the kingdom through the early church all hinged on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It all hinged on Pentecost. And that the Holy Spirit was sent at Pentecost to indwell believers. And he did that in order to do the work of the Holy Spirit, which is to make Christ known to make the reign of Jesus over our hearts and lives a reality and to advance the kingdom of God. So what I hope that we can maybe see a little more clearly after looking at all that good news right there is that what's depicted in chapter 2, 42 through 47 is descriptive, not prescriptive. The Holy Spirit opened the eyes of many hearts to know Jesus that day and they grew, Right? He grew this very first gospel community on mission, this very first church. That day, he grew them from 120 to 3,000 people in one day. And it's exciting. That's awesome, and I'd really like to see that happen here. We wouldn't know what to do with people. But too often, we start trying to do the things of 242 through 47 without the good news of 14 through 41 in hopes that we'll get the same result, but it's futile. We can't encant the Spirit, and we don't need to. He's already with us. He's already doing the work. We don't need to make Him work. He's already doing the work, and, and we just need to lean into what He's definitely doing in and through us. The story of how these first believers like, experienced the gift of the Holy Spirit should lead us to wholly lean into his presence and work as we join in the mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. After all, it's by the Holy Spirit that we know Jesus Christ as Lord. It's by the Holy Spirit that we experience the reality of Christ's reign as a reality in our lives. Uh, and, and it's by the Holy Spirit that the kingdom advances to us, in us, and through us. <clears throat> so my hope, because we continue through this book of Acts, we're going to continue to go. We'll just change the name of the series. That way, you know, we all feel like it's fresh. Uh, my hope as we continue through the book of Acts is that we see the Spirit make us into a people and into a church who very much look like these that we see at the end of Acts chapter 2. That we continue to increasingly submit to the empowering presence and lordship of Jesus Christ that we'd be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, that we'd be continuing in repentance, continuing to find new areas of life in which to follow Jesus and turn to Jesus, and that we would become a people surrounded by the good news so that we would speak the gospel fluently in both word and deed, 
Like, that's one of the implications here, right? Is that Peter is so aware of what the Holy Spirit is doing and so aware of all the good news that is coming about. He's so aware that these prophecies are being fulfilled right there in front of him. And it is really, really good news. He's so aware of it that the gospel is just coming out in all kinds. To anybody and everybody, he can, he can be fluent in the gospel. It just spills out of him. And so my hope is that we become more aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit. That we'd be a church that's just aware of the Holy Spirit at work among us and in us and through us. My hope is that as we faithfully step out together to tell others the good news, and if we do that, that's a leaning into the Holy Spirit, if we'd step out and tell people the good news. But my hope is that as we do that, that many would be cut to the heart and restored to Christ, including ourselves. We continue to be cut to the heart and be restored with the gospel. So we're praying together these prayers. You can see them in the bulletin. There's a bunch of prayers on the back. We're praying these prayers together, that doors would be open to the gospel here, that doors would be open to the gospel around the world, that some very specific prayers for us as a church. We're going together. We're doing some things like this hashtag love downtown thing, just ways we can bless downtown and be on mission to downtown. We can go together in that. We can go together with our missional communities and serve in a place and build rhythms with people that are in our community <clears throat> that need the good news. And we can take the gospel and proclaim it in word and deed wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we play. We're leaning in together this year into the Holy Spirit. Okay? Can we lean in together into the work of the Holy Spirit? He's definitely at work. He's definitely doing the work. We don't have to do an incantation and get him to come and do something. Let's lean into the work that he's already doing to make Jesus known, to make his reign a reality in our hearts and in the hearts of others, and to see the kingdom of God advance. We're going to move into a time of response as we do each week. And in this time, the, the, the band will come back and they'll lead us into some songs, and it's a time for us to, to sing and to worship together, to pray, to sit and reflect where you are. You can use that time as you wish. Also, there's a giving basket in the back where you can give your tithes and offerings. And then also each week we come and we take uh, the bread and dip it in the wine or the juice. We come and take communion together. And as we do this, we're, pro we're proclaiming this very thing that the Holy Spirit is proclaiming through Peter. Jesus is Lord. Jesus has come to be with you, to save you. It's indicting. It means that you are against him but he came while you were still against him. And he's your Lord, and he wants to be your Savior, and the invitation is to repent, to like turn to him and take on his name. And when we take the, the bread, we, it represents his body, and we dip it in the wine or the juice, which represents his blood, we're proclaiming that he is who he says he is, that he's done what he said he would do, and that he did it for me, and that he did it for us. And we're proclaiming that to one another, reminding each other of the good news of Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, whether you're a member of our church or not, we invite you to come and take that and proclaim Christ to each other in this time and remember Christ together in this time. If you're not a Christian, we would ask you not to come and take, not because we want you to be an outsider, but because you can't say that, but instead we'd rather you hear what we are saying in our actions. He's for you. He's not against you. And you're invited to take him and take his name. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful 
for the gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm so thankful for how you move in our hearts and, and, and cut us to the heart and open the eyes of our heart to know the love of Jesus, to know Jesus is Lord, to know Jesus is King, to know Jesus is Savior. I'm so thankful that you make the good news evident to us, that you've made it evident to me. And I know that we needed it increasingly. We need more of it. We need to let it shine into all areas of our life and into all areas of our heart. I pray that you continue to lead us to increasingly submit to Christ as our Lord. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to lean into the work that you're doing through the Holy Spirit. As we take on the nature of Christ through his work, may we be a body of Christ that makes him evident and proclaims his goodness to the world around us. And would you already be preparing the way for Christ to be made known in our city? We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. in his son they called him Jesus he came to love heal and forgive he lived and died to buy my pardon an empty grave is there to prove my savior Cause he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, and all fear is gone. Because I know, I know he holds the future, and life is worth living just because he lives. How sweet to hold a newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives, but greater still, the calm assurance 
This child can face in certain days because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know, I know he holds a future. And life is worth living just because he lives. Be your song. 